Get closer to pure, transparent, live, and recorded audio. Get closer to DPA Microphones, a proud sponsor of the Tape Op Podcast. Learn more at dpamicrophones.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We interviewed Ryan Hewitt back in 2007 for Tape Op Issue 61. A lot can happen in 10 plus years, so we thought it'd be a good idea to check in. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield caught up with Ryan to talk about his mobile recording pioneer dad, David Hewitt, Rick Rubin, Phil Ramone, his recent move to Nashville, and to just generally chew the fat. Enjoy. We chatted earlier, and um, it was there were too many trucks and and car horns and people interrupting us talking about you know reality TV shows and the like. So uh, we thought we'd take another stab at this. One of the things that we talked about was uh, the way that you got into this business, and and that was sort of uh, unique in the, in that you uh, you grew up with it. Uh, your dad being uh, one of the pioneers of mobile recording. Um, so I was curious about about that, and and really just backing up further, um, you can speak for your dad. You know, how did your dad get into that business? I think that was sort of an interesting story you were telling me. Well, I don't know that I've gotten the full truth about that. Um, he's opening up a lot more as he gets older with, um, you know, the real real stories. But the way he tells it is that he was uh, he originally set out to become a race car driver, and um, he was way into mechanics and building hot rod cars and uh, stuff like that. I think his his first car was like a 56 Beetle that he put a, a Porsche engine into um, when he lived in Germany. His dad was in the Air Force. Um, and he got back to the States, went to mechanic school, and I think he moved to Philadelphia uh, in the late, late, late 60s. Uh, he was working actually at, um, I think, a few different car dealerships in Jersey and and actually in Bucks County, where we wound up moving in the 80s, you know, when I was like 13 years old, he worked for Al Holbert's Porsche dealership and was a mechanic there. Uh, and in any event, he was always into music, had a girlfriend who was a singer, and she went in to do some demos or whatever, and he went to the studio with her and observed subpar engineering happening, and he's like, shit, I could do this better. And he, I think he, I don't know if he kicked the guy out of the chair at that moment or if he studied up a little bit and came back. That That's sort of where I'm... I lose the story a bit, um, but uh, he, you know, however he wound up getting into it, he wound up working at um, Regent Sound in Philadelphia, like one of the top studios there back in the day. is run by Bob Lifton, who became a family friend um, when I was a kid, and uh, he, you know, worked his way up through engineering and assisting in engineering, all that sort of thing, and then somehow they had to do a mobile recording date and he contracted the record plant in New York white truck. I think that was in like, oh, 70, 71 maybe. Um, and he just fell in love with the idea of, you know, being on the road in a truck recording live music where you set up, you know, record it and then and then just sort of take off, you know, and, and let someone else deal with it. I think that sort of became his MO because he never really had the attention span or um, interest in you know, countless overdubs and hearing the same song over and over and over again. So it, it sort of appealed to him. And um, uh, 
uh, I think at that point, you know, he went back to the studio, went back to Regent, and uh, set off. And then after that, decided he wanted to go to, um, he wanted to try his luck in California. So my mother and he drove across country in their Volkswagen camper, in their like 1972 uh, Volkswagen camper. And he wanted to get a job at, at the record plant in Sausalito. And he should just showed up there unannounced, you know, well before, obviously, internet and all that sort of thing. So he just sort of showed up, and they're like, well, we don't have any jobs. So they screwed around, drove back across the country. The engine blew up in the truck twice on the van. Uh, he They drove to New York City, went to the New York City record plant. And as he was walking in the front door, one of the guys from the record plant from the remote truck saw him and it's like, Hey David, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm looking for a job. They're like, are you free right now? We're leaving on a gig right now. We need a guy. You want to go? And he's like, yep. And he jumped in the truck and went and like did a job that day. Uh, and so it sort of became this serendipitous, um, situation for him. And then he just took off with, with that and, and took over the remote division at the record plant in New York and built the black truck, um, whose console is in the studio right behind me here in Nashville. Uh, and you know, on and on and on more trucks and more gigs and that sort of thing. So it was, it was, um, so as a kid, were you, you know, did you spend summers out with dad rolling around, uh, working on, uh, working on recordings? Yeah. I mean, I started, uh, I think when I was 12 or 13 years old, I started actually going out on jobs with him in the summers and on holidays and things. Um, you know, started off. As the intern, I was used to polish the fuel tanks on the truck and polish the wheels and clean things and, you know, vacuum the, the cab and change the sheets when the drivers would do long stints and whatever. You know, just sort of the same sort of intern, intern stuff you'd do in a studio, but on a truck. So lots of cleaning, lots of coffee getting, lots of drink getting, lots of running cables and uh, pushing cases and that sort of thing. But yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. So like all while my friends were working, like, you know, flipping burgers and shit. Um, you know, I was backing up my dad and, and other engineers and producers and stuff, uh, doing live recordings. So I met like, I think I met Jimmy Iovine when I was 13 years old on a U2 gig with dad. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were you interested in recording at that point in your life or were you, did you find that intriguing or were you just sort of like, man, this is a cool summer job? I mean, it was just what my dad did, you know? Um, and I remember actually sort of a specific point where when I realized exactly what was going on, when my when I realized what my dad did is cool and that other parents didn't have cool jobs in suburban New York and then, you know, rustic country, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I remember I used to talk about it a lot once I figured it out. Uh, and any time my friends would mention a band my dad worked with, I'm like, oh, my dad recorded them. And at one point, a, a friend of mine turned around and says, you know what, no one gives a fuck what your dad did. Shut the fuck up. And I never spoke about it again, <laughs> you know, but I would just, it was, it was just part of my life. And at that point I realized like, you know, this is, you know, this is cool. And, uh, yeah. And it, it's a, it's a weird place to, to be sometimes. So I, I never really brought it up. I never really talked about my dad once I got into the studio, you know, during summers in college, things like that. I would use it as my trump card, you know, my back pocket kind of thing where if the session was going wrong and I knew the client knew my dad, I would say, oh, you, you know my dad, right? And then everything would be cool. <laughs> and so, did, so you ended up, I, I think you, you mentioned before that, you know, you, you were interested in it at that point, but they said, you're going to college, dude. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in bands in high school and and stuff like that. And I, I, I remember I did like a senior project in in high school where I recorded my band and did all this promotional material and all this crap. Thankfully, I've lost all that. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I realized that I enjoyed it, that it was fun, that it was sort of in my blood, I guess. Like, you know, having being a second generation engineer seemed like a smart thing to do, um, and it was it seemed attainable, you know. Uh, but yeah, they were, my mother was not very excited about me wanting to go into recording. She wanted me to be an architect or something like that. Uh, and they're like, yeah, you're going to college. Dad was always on that, you know, like, look, if you want to do recording, that's great, but you need something to be able to fall back on. You need a skill, you need an education and you need to just go and, and do that thing. You know, neither of my parents really went to college. They, they went to like a year or two and dropped out. So they sort of felt, I think, that uh, they should give their kids what they didn't have. Um, so, yeah, I went to school for electrical engineering at Tufts University in Boston and, and did well enough. But that's actually, ironically, that's where I really discovered that I loved recording because it was far more exciting at the time. So this was in the you know early 90s where you know I'd rather be recording stuff on tape than, than sitting in front of a computer. And so here we are now sitting in front of computers. And you were like the and you were like the AV manager uh, for for the school, right? <laughs> oh, it's so nerdy. Yeah, I ran the sound system at at or the sound company at the school. So Tufts Lighting, Sound and Video (TLSV). We had a, a little truck to carry shit around, and I would steal it on the weekends and go on beer runs and stuff. But yeah, I ran I ran the sound company and you know upgraded from some crappy old console to a a, a Mackie eight bus, which was state of the art <laughs> at the time, state of the art mediocrity at the time, but it was cool because I had the keys to the storage space and, you know, in the middle of the night I would I would invite bands in and do like live two track um demos for like all the bands in school, which included Guster. Um they they went to Tufts and have since blown up. I didn't actually do a demo with them, but I I would record remember on the Mackie that had like the two stereo buses? Um that you could do two independent mixes for. So whenever I did front of house for a band, I'd bring my little portable DAT machine and hook it up to the B bus and have headphones listening to the you know the the second stereo bus and, and hand them a tape at the end and you know ask for another twenty bucks or something <laughs> you know just try to make a couple bucks and, and have fun and try to impress people yeah and so so after after you were in Boston you're you're you've you've obviously got an interest in recording um, is it at that point that you moved to New York and um, you started interning was that Sony yeah I mean I was doing internships after my in the summers during college. So I think I started my sophomore year at um, at Sony, or maybe my after my junior year. I think it was a junior year. I had an internship at Sony during the summer uh, in the tech shop, and I tried to parlay that. Actually, I successfully parlayed that into, into school credit somehow. I wrote a paper about aligning tape machines or some shit, and I got a C, but it was good enough to get, to get a credit, so that was kind of cool. Um, and then I went back after I graduated, and they gave me a job at the uh, Princely salary of five dollars an hour after you know a nearly six-figure education <laughs> um but it, it was great like there was a lot of stuff going on at sony studios at the time um and i wound up uh i wound up taking a, an engineering job i was like the last person on the totem pole to to be asked by one of the techs to engineer a, a job that he was bringing in over like fourth of july weekend or 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 labor day or something like that and you know, caught the attention of a few people and got promoted very quickly uh, and wound up 
assisting for Michael Brower actually for a couple years, and that was a that was a pretty awesome experience as far as you know learning how to learning how to mix and how to have bedside manner and and um, yeah. I think you mentioned before that he relayed to you that he was told to sort of kick your ass. <laughs> well, when I when I first started assisting there, I, you know, I was a bit of a know-it-all, and I, I remember telling one of the staff engineers, I set something up for a staff engineer, and he was like, why did you do it this way? You know, this is how I want it. And I'm like, oh, well, this is smarter, da-da-da-da. He's like, no, actually, it's not. Do, the, do, do what I tell you, not what you think is smart, and then I'll show you why. So... I had to tear the whole thing down, redo it again. And then he showed me why I'd fucked it up. And I was like, oh, I didn't really understand normaling patch base at the time. And I did a lot more work than I needed to do. And um, But it wasn't the only episode. There was a few things where I was a bit cocky about stuff. And so I think Michael Brower's assistant had quit suddenly. And then he went through every other assistant in the place. And no one wanted to work for him. So I was sent to Brower to get my ass kicked and to be knocked down a few levels. Um, but Michael told me years later about this story about how he had been told about me and, and I was sent to him. And he was like, as soon as you walked in the room, you were so nice and, and, and humble that I, I didn't, I forgot that you were the asshole, <laughs> that I was supposed to kick his butt. Um, but he did still kick my butt. He taught me a lot and, um, you know, showed me what was going on and, and, um, and he did take a lot of time. He wasn't as busy as he is now. This was sort of pre-Coldplay, um, where he was he was really busy for a long time, and then he had a, a bit of a lull, you know, like so many people do. Um, and But, you know, the stuff we were working on, of course, sounded great, and he was doing his thing even way back then. It's, it, it sounded pretty awesome. And he would, he would bring me up to the console sometimes and, and, you know, A, B things. He wouldn't tell me what he was doing, but he'd be like, A or B, what do you hear the difference between A and B? And, you know, I didn't really know anything. So I was like, uh, I don't know. He's like, all right, this is what I'm doing. This is the difference. Now listen to the transients on the, on the drums and tell me what's different. And so he would, you know, he really took an interest in, in um, training my ears. And we had a lot of fun. We worked on some really cool records and, and, and had a good time together. That's cool. And so then you, you also worked with Phil Ramone early on. Yeah. Well, see, I, I did this thing at the studio where, you know, like whenever we weren't working, you know, I could hang out in the mic locker or whatever. And there was the, the early computer software for scheduling. And I'd look months and months ahead in the schedule to see what was coming in. And I would call the client and tell them to request me. It was a very underhanded tactic. And I wound up getting a lot of gigs and I, I pleaded. I was like, I don't, I don't, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but I think it's long enough now that I can admit to doing that on several gigs and, and sort of uh, undercutting a few guys at the studio. Um, and some people got pretty upset about that. But I wound up doing this with Phil Ramone. Somehow I got on that gig um, and... It was it was a band that we made this record. It was cool. This band called Mini King. It never came out. It was on Phil's label that he started at the time called N2K. It was you know because it was before the year 2000, so it was like this futuristic idea of a record label, um, which collapsed. And I don't think they even re- released a single album. I don't remember what happened. But the singer anyway lives here in Nashville, and we're still good friends twenty some years later. Uh, but yeah, working for Phil was was pretty incredible. He is he is the ultimate was the ultimate smooth operator. He had like the ultimate bedside manner and his his um, shtick 
with people was was just so great. His musicality, his his instinct was uh, was amazing. His his the way he conducted himself and the session was was so cool. I remember there was one point where a microphone we were doing a string date for the session and and a microphone went down and I started to have a bad temper like um like my dad did and uh and he just sort of took me aside and poked me in the chest he's like you can do that shit on someone else's session but when you're working with me you stay calm keep it in control you know and and i just like took a deep breath i'm like all right i got this (laughs) yeah i mean and those are the moments right those are those sort of pinnacle key moments that you you remember you probably don't necessarily remember somebody showing you a setting on a eq or compressor but phil ramon telling you to relax (laughs) or take it or take it out the door you know yeah i I think about that a lot because you know i've i've i have fixed a lot of issues with my with my bad temper um, but occasionally it still flares up but usually it's at an inanimate object you know i I broke a guitar pedal the other day because it it uh was fucking up on me (laughs) thankfully it was a cheap one um, but there's, but there's also stories, Phil even told a story himself about how he was engineering something and, you know, back in the day in the, that would have been the early sixties and a, a U67 went down and he threw it against the wall because he was so angry. And I was like, holy crap, <laughs> oops. It was like, it's my studio. I can do what I want. So much of, um, uh, production is, is the it's psychology of deal, dealing with people oh, rather wow. than the technical. Yeah, it's like 90% psychology being a producer, I think. And you can tell the difference between someone who knows what they're doing and someone who doesn't by how they interact with the talent and how they encourage uh, people to be creative and um, and encourage them to work, you know, because at the end of the day, making a record is still work. You know, it's not, you know... Oh, just just play it, put it in the computer, and and you know that's that. I think that um, the really creative, professional producers understand how to make people work without making without without them thinking it's work. You know, they're getting takes and takes and takes until it's great. And you know, the 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 mediocre ones are like, oh, you know, that that's fine, that's good. You know, but it's got to be great. If it's not great, what are we doing? You know. I mean, another guy you've you worked with. I mean, so from New York, you ended up you end up in L.A. and you know one of these producers that obviously has a track record is Rick Rubin, who you ended up working with, and um, and I think we we talked about him just sort of being a super listener and obviously has a, a, a talent in dealing with people and bringing out the best in people because he's not a he's not a technician, he's not an engineer, but he certainly made a lot of great records. Yeah, he's he's a, a listener and a fan. You know, and um, he's been through this so much at this point. I mean, you know, he's like 50 now, maybe. So he's been making records for 30 years. And um, I challenge you to find someone who's made more hit records than than him in, in every conceivable genre, too. You know, I mean, just off the top of my head, it's like country, rock, rap, metal, alternative. Um, what else is there? in popular music you know and he's done pop stuff he's done lady gaga and stuff like that so yeah so what what do you think it is i mean he he just knows how to listen and he has a very distinct simple taste to make sure that the listener is never overwhelmed or bored you know it's walking that fine line 
of um, keeping it interesting but not overwhelming. Um, I always like to tell people this story about how, you know, everyone says, oh, Rick's never in the studio and, you know, he disappears and whatever. And it's like, that that's old Rick, you know. That's how Rick, I think, used to be. He earned a reputation for that. And I think he had to come, he had to back that down. He had to back off that reputation so that he could, I don't, I even, I don't even know why, probably because it's a bad reputation to have. But in, in my experience with Rick, he's there for the important parts. You know, he's there for pre-production, you know, the work that people don't see that goes into making a great record. He's there with the band in a rehearsal studio, hashing out arrangements for songs before he even gets in the studio. You know, um, typically he, like with the Chili Peppers, they'd be in this, they'd be in rehearsals for like six months, writing and arranging and, and you know, messing with songs until they were, you know, good enough to record. Um, and so, you know, in my opinion and, and many others, a record can be, can be really made in pre-production. Uh, and so by the time you get to the studio, he's there for the basic tracks, um, giving feedback and input into how things sound under the microphones. Um, you know, not necessarily in tones and things like that. That's the engineer. He, 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 the, the main thing about it is he delegates a lot of responsibility to engineers um, in his camp. So, um, he, like I said, he's there during the basic tracks. The engineers get the sounds. If he doesn't like something, he'll tell you. But if he likes something, he won't say anything. So that took a lot of um, getting used to. So I was always used to people saying, yes, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is not. Whereas Rick would just, you know, be there and everything's cool unless he says otherwise. Um, and so we do the, once you do the basics, get the edits together and, and, and takes picked, he just sets the band and the engineer off on a overdubbing road trip. You know, we get to do whatever the hell we want. Um, the engineer would coach the band through things in, if it was a young band. But if it's, it's something like the Chili Peppers, he trusts, you know, John and, and Flea and, and Chad to do the necessary overdubs, and they can always be removed. You know, so we would do all these overdubs and Rick would then listen to them and say, yes, 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 no, yes, 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 no, you know, take things out like that doesn't need to be in the first chorus that that can come in the second chorus or with a young band. You know, I worked with this band called the Ruin Brothers where we would overdub all this stuff. The band had these grand visions of things to put on the record. And Rick would come in after we did all this stuff and he'd listen and he'd say, stop, 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 stop. Play me what the band played on the floor. You know, he's he's way into live band tracking. It's pretty much all the records I've done with him have been, you know, a band over you know, band tracking together and then overdubs after that. So he says, Take everything off, play me what the band played along with the final lead vocal. Great. Turn off all the overdubs. And we'd go we'd add overdubs one by one until he liked things. You know, we'd I'd play him something, he's like, Don't need it. You know, next thing, don't need it. Nope. Oh, that's good. Second chorus. Okay save that one and we go through this process for like an hour and sculpt all these overdubs and then he's like cool put your headphones on balance that play it back for me and so i'd dick around with the levels and stuff and play it back for me and then he'd stop again don't need that or you know what we need actually need something there so it becomes this sort of he plays the arranger and he's listening from his couch and and vibing on the whole thing and and is able to make uh decisions but at the same time you know that that involves trusting the band and the engineer to come up with great parts so um it's it's sort of it's a tedious way of making records because you're you're doing you know two steps forward one step back a lot of times but at the same time he's not there saying you know cutting things off at the knees and he's also keeping fresh ears and um he's able to step back 
and and listen to the thing as a whole rather than like these minuscule little parts and i've worked with a lot of people who make you know who micromanage everything and dismiss great ideas you know before they're even realized because he doesn't understand necessarily what's happening but you know that's why i think that's why rick sort of functions in that in that way because he's just like you just do you you do your thing put whatever the fuck you want on the song because it can always be taken off you know and it's interesting to see what types of musicians are precious about the parts that they've put down and which ones aren't you know it, it's interesting to see where that ego lies and where that creative genius lies and 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 how people are able to deal with things being peeled off um, the song Sometimes it's a bit contentious, but it's it's always interesting, especially from my perspective, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you touched on something that was really interesting and kind of critical, which was that he brings great people into the mix and lets them do their job. Yeah, I mean, what's the point of, what's the point of bringing some, a great engineer or a great musician in or having working with a great band if you're not letting them do what it is that they do? Well, it's easy to say, but I think a lot of people don't. There, there are many circumstances where that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, I've I've been in those circumstances, and it sucks. It's really it's like it's like you just plug one of my ears, please. You know. Yeah, and and it's you know I mean I think that the spirit of collaboration when you bring good people together, you know, yields great results. Yeah, well that's that's what I mean. That's in, that's also what's interesting is like if you're a producer and you can you can afford to get the best people on your record, you're gonna look fucking great, you know? But if you get these great people and then don't let them do their job, you look like an idiot. Yeah. The thing that sort of put you on the map and was a, a breakthrough moment for you was working with the Chili Peppers on uh, Stadium Arcadium. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how that went down? Yeah, I mean, I um, I mean, backing up a, a couple years before that, I, I wound up, uh, the short, the short version of the story. I wound up moving to LA to work for SSL, and um, we installed a console at, at Cello, which is now called East West. Ran, ran, and I ran into um, Jim Scott after being in LA for almost a year, and Jim's assistant had just quit. So this is like a kind of it's kind of a theme. Uh, Brower's assistant quit, and and then Jim's assistant quit. And you know, we had seen each other in the halls a few times while I was working on the console, and. You know, I had met him in New York. He said, oh, what are you doing here working for SSL? Oh, you should be, you know, in the studio. A couple weeks later, his assistant quits, and he's like, hey, man, do um, you want to come work for me? I'm uh, My assistant quit. And I was like, oh, you know, I got this steady job. And he's like, well, I'm doing the Chili Peppers record in a couple weeks. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. Let's, uh, yes, I will take that job. <laughs> so I went to SSL and quit um, and wound up working for Jim, assisted him on, on the Chili Peppers By The Way record and became friendly with the guys in the band and and I decided at that moment that I was going to work for Rick Rubin. I wanted to engineer and, and mix stuff for Rick and I and I was just sort of figuring out how to do that and um I was just on top of everything he needed when I was an assistant. Like he had he needed a notepad, he needed a yellow legal pad, and a sharp pencils and a bottle of water at all times by the couch. So I made sure he always had that and you know, just looked after him and, and you know, in, in the simplest sort of, you know, waiter manner. Um, and I finally get him to, got him to talk to me, which was a feat in itself. But anyway, I wound up doing a bunch of solo records for John. And um, and then it came time for the next Chili Peppers record, and they chose someone else against John's wishes. Uh, he wanted me to engineer everything because we had become real tight. Um, but Rick had a, a different idea, and they hired someone else. And 
I wound up being brought on a few weeks into the record as the tape op because no one knew how to run a tape machine anymore. But it it was my forte at the time. Was all the stuff with John was on tape, and you know I could punch in on you know minuscule gaps and things like that. And I really knew how to get it done. So I sat in there as a tape op watching another engineer record all this stuff. And then I think he had to go off on some other gig, and I took over for a few days and and wound up doing. I recut um, Danny California, what became the single, and uh, and did you know did a bunch of overdubs, and then basic tracks were done, and you know John was like, "You're going to be the guy when when he leaves after basic tracks." So we went to John's house. I finished all the overdubs with him, and Flea and uh, Andrew Sheps did all the vocals with um, with Anthony, and then it, you know it came time for the typical Rick Rubin mix off, where he would take three songs and and have several different mixers do their take on it. So it was, um, I think it was me and Andrew and Jim Scott and Neil Avron and maybe one or two other guys. And um, I remember getting the phone call. John Frusciante called me and said that I won. And I was, I remember jumping up and down and just freaking the fuck out. It was, it was awesome. And then Chad, Chad called me and, and, uh, and he's like, I haven't even heard your mixes, but but Rick told me if you don't like the drum sounds on these mixes, I will eat my hat. <laughs> so um, Chad finally did hear them. He was on vacation in Mexico, I think, when the test mixes went down. But he's like, cool, I'll go with. If you say the drum sounds are great, I'll go with that. So I got that gig, and and it was, um, yeah, it was it was life changing, career changing, you know, everything changed at that moment. It was fucking awesome. <laughs> um. Who are some of your other mentors as you've, uh, you know, grown as a, an engineer, producer? Um, well, I mean, people, there were people I worked for and there were people that I just sort of hung out with um, or assisted or became friendly with. But, I mean, going back to New York, I worked with um, Elliot Shiner was a, a big influence on me and, and we're still good friends. He's a you know family friend, worked with my dad for years in the truck. Um, Bob Power was another guy I assisted um wonderful engineer and mixer and of a, of a totally different sort from all these other guys um and super intellectual and and super musical really really great guy uh and then in LA I worked with um once I started engineering more I worked with uh Jerry Finn who was a punk rock producer he did like Green Day and um Blink-182 Alkaline Trio then wound up doing some Morrissey stuff and um we did it. We did a few records together, and he actually he wound up having a passed away of a brain aneurysm suddenly at age like thirty nine. So um, count your blessings for uh, careers and stuff. But those those are sort of like the main the main guys that that um, influenced how I do things, and they're all so different in their approaches to everything. You know, literally to life, to music, to audio, to mixing, and you know I just took little bits of everybody's concepts and ideas and habits and sort of rolled them into my own. And, um, I think that made, it makes my own thing because no one else has that set of influences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what sort of things now, now that you're a little bit, uh, you know, you're more in the driver's seat in terms of being one of the people that, you know, aspiring producers and engineers look up to, you know, what are the things that you feel are important to pass along in the tradition of recording? Um, I mean, the things that are most important to me are like, I mean, basic concept of paying attention, 
you know, and doing things correctly. Uh, and there's not always time for that, which is the travesty of modern recording, I think, where people just throw shit together and expect it to sound great. Um, the concept of getting the sound at the source and getting the sound on the way in to whatever your recording device is, you know, um, it's, um, it's fascinating to see how young people record stuff where they just, you know, put a mic somewhere and, and then put like 17 plugins on something to try to make it sound like it should. And it's like, do you know why it doesn't sound like that on the way in? You know, have you experimented with mic placement? Does the guitar sound good to begin with? Does the, is the drum in tune with itself? Does the drum sound in your ears the way it, the way you want it to, the way you envision it sounding? Um, you know, the concept of people recording a drum kit merely as a way to trigger shit, which is cool for a certain kind of music, but, um, you know, why not get a great sound on the way in? I don't know. Right. <laughs> that's that's my main gripe. You know, look, you don't have to, you don't, you know, the kid, kids, kids, I'm going to use that word generically for people younger than me. Um, kids are not making the same kind of music that we made. You know, they're they're breaking new ground and all sorts of new shit. So I, I, I can't really sit here in my ivory tower and tell them how to record shit that, you know, recording drums need to sound like drums. I mean, maybe they don't want that to be the case. And, you know, I mean, I listen to a lot of new young music and it fucking kills me. It floors me in a lot of cases that how cool it sounds and they're doing something different. So I applaud that for sure. You know, but at the same time, like some of these records, like when I when I turn off my engineer brain, they're they're wonderful. But then I listen to them with my engineers and I'm like, oh, man, if this was, you know, a little bit more this, it would be so much more rad. And if this was a little bit more this, it'd be so much cooler. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, would it be? Is what's catching my ear the fact that it's not or is it just a great tune? Like, what's the what's the story? Like, what what am I hearing? What's affecting me that I love this? song so much you know is it is it the engineering or is it the songwriting is it the you know programming or or whatever there's so many different things to a song that will catch your ear that you know there's there's things out there that we know sound like shit but they're we still love them and listen to them on a on a daily basis so um you know again who am i to fucking criticize people making cool music you know the the quote-unquote incorrect way you know i don't want to become a jaded old fuck yet yeah, not yet. You can you, not yet. I got a few years. Soon enough. Um, Phil, you moved down to Nashville. You know, there's a perception of Nashville being this a little bit of a country music, uh, you know, puppy mill factory for music. How's that move for to Nashville been for you? It's been good. You know, I mean, L.A. was was wonderful. I was there like 16 years or so, and at a, at a certain point, it just became you know, it just got old. You know, it's like doing the same thing over and over again, and and uh, you know, with the same sort of thing. And moving to Nashville was a fresh challenge and a fresh, uh, I don't know, a fresh set of, yes, yeah, just a fresh set of challenges, you know, and it, it was a different lifestyle. It's a lot, it's it's chill down here. It's slow. People say LA is slow and it's not. It's actually, it's it's very, very fast paced, but, you know, there's there's this sort of um, facade of of slow and chill and everything's cool, but it's not. It's It's actually really hard living, um, being a city like that, to be honest. And it just sort of grated on me after a while. Um, but yeah, down here it's, it's low key. You know, there is that factory mentality on, in, in certain places, but 
you don't have to be part of that. You know, it can exist in parallel with whatever it is you want to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't come here to make country records. I came here to have a life, you know, um, to have space and, and time added back to my life that I felt was taken away by living in, in big cities. Um, this is actually the smallest town I've lived in since I left Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of great rock and roll going on down here. There's a homegrown uh, music scene that's happening. I mean, you know, there's like punk rock happening here. There's, you know, alt rock. There's, you know, Americana. There's all everything you could possibly want to do or play or record is here. You know, we have some of the best studios on the planet down here. We have the biggest microphone collection on the planet at Blackbird Music, Blackbird Studios. Um, you know, I, I, my studio's in Berry Hill. There's 60 recording studios in one square mile. So, you know, if the if you if you want to complain about something, it's not that. Yeah. So I mean, how does it, how does that work? I mean, with so much concentration, how how's every how are you know people working? Everyone's working. I mean, maybe not every single person all the time, but people are busy. You know, it's like your reputation depends on it. And, you know, people know there's there's so much music happening here. There's so much going on on so many different levels that there is always something to do. And you know what? If there isn't, take a fucking day off and enjoy it. So if I don't have anything to do for a day, I'm like, cool. I'm going to go, you know, screw around in my yard or take the dog for a walk or go to a museum or go see shows or, or whatever. There's, there's plenty to be doing besides always working. But um, no, I mean, you know, it's sink or swim. If, you're, if you don't have talent, you know, get out of the way. Um, but that doesn't really last much here. You know, like if you don't have the talent, you don't, you don't stick around very long. I mean, everyone I know who's got a studio in Berry Hill is, is pretty consistently working. So I can't... I can't make any complaints about that, and I don't think anyone I know down here really can either. Thanks, thanks again for uh, taking the time and and doing part part two. We, that other interview will will have to you know be like an archive thing that we dig out. Uh, oh, dude, it's my pleasure. I just, I missed talking to you. It's like we had so much fun that week. I was like. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.